At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. One of the, my favorite things to do as a pastor and that I've been able to do for many years is help prepare young couples for marriage. And so usually when someone comes to me and they want to get married, we go through a kind of pre-marriage process. And in that process, we talk about a whole lots of different things. One of the things I usually have young couples do is I'll have them go through a survey kind of identifying all their expectations for what it means when they start living with their future spouse. And usually they'll identify this and we'll sit down and at some point I say, you've just got to throw all those out the window because you have a whole new thing that you need to learn. Right? And if any of you are married, you know that once you get married, you like have a whole new life. Like all the things you thought you know, you no longer know. Like I thought I knew how to clean a house. Then I got married and realized I had no idea how to clean a house. Right? Like I always thought cleaning was just like rearranging the things into nice piles. So I was like, oh yeah, you just straighten everything up, right? And so then you're laughing because you've been through this, haven't you, right? So then I, I get married and my wife comes home and I'm like, babe, I cleaned the kitchen. She's like, this isn't clean. I'm like, yeah, it is, look. She's like, no, Jacob, we have drawers for a reason. Like there's a cabinet for dishes. Like, oh, that's what you mean by clean, right? And so all of us have been through that. You know, there's old habits, old things that you've got to relearn once you join your life with another person. Sometimes those habits die hard. Sometimes it's a challenge. I'm still learning how to clean a house 15 years in, or almost 15. When we put our faith in Jesus, and we trust in him as our savior, we come to submit under our lives under his rule and reign as king, we're invited into an entirely new life, a whole new way of living. That when the Bible talks about the fact that when we trust in God, we get eternal life, that doesn't just mean we get to go somewhere when we die, although that's part of it. But what it means is we now get the divine life that God intended for us to begin living now that carries on into eternity. That fundamental to the gospel is an entire new way of being human and living in Jesus. But this... This way of living sometimes can be a tricky process for us. Right? Old habits die hard. That's part of the reason we call this series New-ish. Because although Jesus has come and everything has changed and we're entirely new, sometimes there's a challenge for us of learning to live that new life out here in the present. So while the gospel brings a radically new life, sometimes our old way of living dies hard. And sometimes we wrestle with the question, how do I actually begin to live out my new life in relationship to the old way that I'm living that I carried into this relationship. Well, Paul wants to help us this morning. In Romans 5 through 7, Paul's wrestling with the reality of what it means to live our new life of Christ in the midst of the current world that we find ourselves marked by sin. 
And he's been dealing with a number of questions related to this reality. For Paul, the fact that when we put our trust in Jesus, we're united with him, changes everything for us. But it also leads us to ask a whole bunch of different questions. Like one of the questions that we wrestle with is, well, if I'm now marked by Jesus and I'm under grace, should I just keep on sinning so grace can abound? Well, Paul says in the first half of Romans 6, no, you're dead to sin. That's not what marks your life anymore. Well, if I'm free from the law, Paul, and I'm under grace, should I just keep sinning now that there's no law to keep me? Paul says, no, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're now bound to God. That's what marks your new life. And in Romans 7, Paul wants to continue to encourage us to embrace the new life, the new way that God has made available to us in and through the gospel of Jesus. And Paul wants to give us another reason for why we should embrace this new life. And the reason Paul wants us to understand this morning that we're going to unpack together is the reality that belonging to Christ actually leads us to bear fruit in Christ. That when we put our faith in Jesus and we're united to him, it should lead us into a life that actually bears the fruit of God's kingdom that's now marked by Jesus for Paul, it's not just the reality that, oh, you don't, shouldn't sin anymore because you're free from the law, but actually we have a whole new life available to us. But the question naturally is, well, why is this the case? Why does belonging to Jesus lead to bearing fruit for Jesus? And how does this actually happen? And Paul this morning is going to unpack three realities that help us understand why we're to lean into not just that we belong to Christ, but that it should bear fruit in our lives. You see the first reality come in verse 1 of chapter 7. Look at it with me. It says, Or do you not know brothers? Or you could translate that brothers and sisters. Now Paul's used this phrase, do you not know, or multiple times in chapter 6. It's kind of his way of saying, hey, don't forget this reality, this truth should mark your new life in Christ. So he wants to unpack a principle that kind of shapes and forms how we're now called to live. So he says, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, Paul's writing to a mixed audience. The Roman church was made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. And Paul knows as he unpacks the reality of the union of Christ that the Jewish Christians that were part of the audience would have a major hurdle to embrace kind of the gospel that he was laying out, right? That's why he references, I'm speaking to those who know the law. And when Paul uses the phrase, the law, he's using it as a technical language for the first five books of the, law, the Bible, what the Jews would call the Torah, God's instruction for his people. And Paul knows that the Torah marked the Jewish Christians for generations, or for Jews for generations, and that now, as these Jews have put their faith in Jesus, and Paul begins to realize that, no, your salvation actually is in Jesus, that there's a little bit of a hurdle for them, which kind of is the question of, well, then how are we supposed to relate to the Torah, to the Old Testament law? What, what are we supposed to do with that? You see, the Torah defined everything for the Jews. It defined their identity, who they were, how they understood themselves. It defined their culture. It defined their ethics. It defined the way that they were to live in relationship to God. And not only that, for Paul's Jewish audience, they understood that they were bound to the Torah by covenant. 
that God had made a covenant at Sinai with the Jewish people and that they were bound to it. So if Paul's now saying, wait, your whole salvation is Jesus, their natural question is like, well, what does that mean for the law? And Paul knows that he can't just dismiss it. He can't just move on. Like, oh, we'll ignore that. Like, no, this is a huge deal. And so he wants to help his audience understand their relationship to the law. And so he unpacks this principle for them, that the law is binding on a person only as long as they're alive. And then Paul immediately jumps into illustration to kind of unpack that further. And he basically says, your relationship to the law is kind of like the relationship of a woman to her husband. And he actually is rooting his ideas in verses 2 and 3 in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 24. And the idea was that when a man and woman were married, they were bound in covenant. But if one of them died, they were then free from that covenant relationship and able to marry another. So Paul's main principle is that death ends the marriage covenant. That's why he goes into this whole diatribe. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. And then he holds this whole thing about adultery, right? Like if she commits adultery while he's alive, that's adultery. But if he's dead, it's not. Because if somebody's alive and you've committed yourself in covenant relationship to them, you should honor that commitment, right? We, we know this intuitively. Even if we're not Christians, our, our society knows this, that if you've made a covenant with a person, you should honor that commitment and covenant relationship to them. I was reminded that this week, I don't, I don't know if some of you saw the news about Urban Meyer, the coach of the Jacksonville Jaguar, who used to coach the Buckeyes in Florida before that. But he found himself in a compromising situation this week with someone who wasn't his wife, while his wife was at home watching her grandkids. And I read several articles about it, right? And, and it was amazing kind of the, the response from the news media and the coverage. Even the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars came out and said, like, Urban Meyer's got to earn his trust back with the team. I was like, forget his team. What about his wife? Right, but like we immediately, even in our society, even if you're not a Jesus follower, even in a society that promotes freedom and sexual ethics to the extreme that we do, knows if you've made this commitment, you should honor it. And listen, I'm not here to defend Urban Meyer, even as a Buckeyes fan. My loyalty to the kingdom of God and righteousness supersedes its college football, amen? <laughs> but at some point, we as a society, we recognize this and we say, yeah, 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 if you're in a commitment relationship and you're married, you should honor that. But that all changes when someone dies. If you have a friend who's married and their spouse passes away, as terrible that is, and they start dating again or get remarried, we look at that and we say, yeah, that makes sense because death ends the marriage covenant. That's Paul's illustration. And so he then wants to apply the point essentially then to how we are called to relate to the Old Testament law by saying death changes the fundamental nature of covenants and it's one, and a person's binding relationship to it. That's his whole point in verse 4. Look how he draws kind of his application out. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. What Paul wants us to understand is that belonging to Christ actually releases us from the law. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you're united with him. And one of the things you're united to is his death. That as Christ died, so you died with him. And you've been raised to new life. And because you died with Christ, you're no longer bound under the covenant relationship and the obligations of the Old Testament law. Just like a married woman is no longer bound to her marriage covenant because of her husband's death, 
So we are no longer bound to the law because of our union with Christ's death. And what we need to realize, Jew or Gentile, is that when we embrace Jesus, when we come to trust in him and receive his new Christ and new life, when we belong to Christ, God actually releases us and cuts us off from our old life and our old self. That that person dies and the obligation being bound to the law and sin in death is no longer in you if you are in Christ. You died to the law. You are no longer bound to it. Our old lives, our old identity, our old ethics, our old way of understanding who we are and how we are called to live dies when we put our death or put our faith in Jesus. And we are given something entirely new. But if we're to embrace what's new, we have to remember to let go of what's old. Some of us, we still hold on to that old identity. We still hold on to that old sense of our our ethical choices. We still hold on to the old things that we were before Christ, just like the Jews held on to the Torah and used it as a way to mark their lives and say, look at us, we're more righteous than you. Some of us hold on to our old things to say, look at me. But what Paul wants to say is, if you really want to embrace the new life Jesus has for you, you need to recognize you're dead to that old way. You're dead to that old self. That no longer is what defines your reality, your ethics, your obligation. You're freed from the law. But it's not just that we're dead to the law and no longer bound to it. What Paul wants to help us understand is that part of dying to the law is that it not only releases us from those obligations, it frees us to be obligated to something entirely new. You actually see this halfway through verse 4. Right, so, so follow the train of thought again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that. So why did you die to the law? So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. See, what Paul wants us to understand is that belonging to Christ not only releases us from the law, but belonging to Christ actually weds us to him. It joins us and unites us to him. One of the first two purposes that Paul wants to articulate of why we're free from the law is so that you and I can belong freely in loving relationship with Jesus. That our salvation, the very essence of being freed from sin and brought into God's kingdom, lies in our union with him. And what now defines our reality is not the Old Testament law, but God's new covenant for the new heaven and new earth that comes through Jesus that's signified in his resurrection. That's why Paul says, you belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. What now marks our life, our identity, our reality is God's new world, which comes through Jesus being raised. And that's now the new life that we live. Paul's actually alluding back to the reference he made earlier in chapter 6. If you remember in verse 4, he talked about our union with Christ and what it means that we died to sin but have been raised to a new life. This is what he says in 6.4. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him, with Jesus, by baptism, into death. So that's what took place. And here's the thing. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So just as Jesus died... And was risen again to an entire new life. When you've trusted in him, you've died to your old self. And you've been risen to walk in a new life. In his life. In his eternal life. That's part of God's new creation and redemption work that he's doing. This is now 
what marks our lives. And when we trust in Jesus, we come to be united to him in such a way that he now defines our reality. That we leave what's behind and we join in with Christ's life and we walk in it. One of the things that um, I do when I, when I do pre-marriage counseling with couples is I'll often kind of walk them through the process of marriage, kind of rooted out of God's word and help them really understand what is taking place when they marry someone. And the scripture gives a very clear picture of what marriage looks like in Genesis 2, 24. Paul actually references this when he talks about marriage. Jesus references this when he talks about marriage. And in Genesis 2, 24, God just created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and he brings them together. And then the author kind of reflects on that and gives this principal text, which as Christians, we believe is the foundation for God's covenant of marriage. But this verse gives three kind of very clear things that takes place when we commit to someone. First, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So we leave our family of origin and shall hold fast to his wife. That word we translate hold fast in the Hebrew is the idea of joining or clinging. And the two shall become one. They become one new entity together. So what we fundamentally understand about the nature of marriage is that when you get married, you leave your family of origin. You still love them and care for them, right? They're still your family in some ways. But you now are joined with someone new and you form an entirely new family unit, an entirely new entity in the world that did not exist before. And that new family unit now defines your priority and your life. One of the things I often have to work with young couples is to say, you're not defined by your parents' expectations of you anymore. You're defined by your union with your spouse. And it's your job to work out together what your marriage will look like. One time I had to have one of those fun conversations with my dad, and I have a great dad, but at one point I said, Dad, my marriage is not your marriage. I have to work this out with my wife. Because that's the act of leaving and joining. You're now defined by an entirely new entity. This defines how you live and what shapes your reality as a married couple. What Paul's trying to say is that's what happens in Jesus. When we put our faith in Jesus, we leave our old family. We leave our old ways. We leave our old life. And we're united to him now in covenant relationship. And because of that, he defines our reality. So what is Jesus one of my life? What does Jesus call me to live? That's what now defines our new life and the way that we're called to live. Now, sometimes it can be hard to leave our old life patterns, the expectations of our old ways of life. And it's easy for us to fall prey sometimes to defining ourselves by those old things instead of our new life in Christ. But for Paul, that's kind of like marrying someone and then returning to live with them. Like imagine if you got married and then you moved back into your old bedroom in your parents' house. Like, well, that'd be weird. Why are you defining your life by what you were before you were married? That's Paul's whole point. Why are you defining your life by the law and the Torah when you've been freed from that? You've moved in Jesus' house now. He gets to call the shots. You follow his way. And his way is much better. It's a way of love and life and goodness but you're united and joined with him. He's what defines you because you're united with him. And it's now this call to kind of live out our union with Jesus 
that Paul now kind of shifts to to encourage us to think about how we live now. So you see in verse 3, he brings us our second purpose out of kind of his principle that we're dead to the law. We're now alive and united with Jesus. Follow the train of thought in verse 4 again with me. Ready? Likewise, my brothers, you've died to the law through the body of Christ. So that no longer binds you so that you may belong to or be united to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, which is Jesus, in order that. So there's your purpose statement that you may bear fruit for God. That's where we get belonging to Jesus leads to bearing fruit for Jesus. Now, what does that look like, Paul? Well, he unpacks that in verse five. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What Paul essentially wants them to understand is you are never going to find the new life of God in following the law. That only works to actually not free you from the law, but produce sin in you. Because once the law enters the picture, it stirs up our own disobedience. Parents, if you're in the room, have you ever noticed that when you give your kid a rule, that's suddenly when they want to break it? Like if if I tell my kids, don't come in my room, they won't come in my room or even think about it for like the whole day. As soon as I say, don't go in my room, now they want to come in the room. Why is that? Because we're humans. We all do that. The law says this, you're like, eh, maybe I can take it a little further, right? Maybe I can stretch it. Like as soon as the law is clarified, we want to take the next step. And Paul says, that's what the law does. It stirs up the sinful part of us. And he's going to unpack this further next week. But, but that's what he wants to see. The law doesn't actually deal with our root issue. It makes it worse. John Bunyan, in his famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress, he gives this picture. Christian is on a journey to the celestial city. He stops at the interpreter's house. And at one point, the interpreter takes him into a room. And the room is completely covered in dust. Just as dusty as you can think of a room. And someone walks into the room with a broom. And they start to sweep the dust. And you know what happens? The room suddenly fills with dust. All the dust that was laying on the furniture and the floor is suddenly stirred up. And now you can barely see in the room because the dust has been stirred up. And essentially what Bunyan's picture is, that's what the law does. Like the law comes in and it just stirs up sin. It makes us realize we can never live up to God's standard. We can never fully live the way God desires for us to live in our own strength and our own effort. And that's the purpose of the law. It only serves to reveal to us we need something beyond ourselves to actually live the life that God calls us to. That's why Paul says, we were, at work, the, we we're aroused by the law. We we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Right? That's the result when we try to make our lives about perfection, about following all the rules of God's law apart from God's work within our hearts. But Paul wants to give us good news. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. That's not what defines you anymore. God's actually made a new way available to you to empower you to live the new life that he has for you. What is that? Paul says it right there. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, it's the spirit of God that actually comes and works in our hearts in such a way that we begin to live an entirely new way of life. In Bunyan's imagery of the dusty room, it's somebody that brings water 
into the room and water begins to calm the dust to bring it down and allow for cleaning instead of it being stirred up. What Paul wants to remind us is that our lives need to be sprinkled, not only sprinkled, saturated with the Spirit of God because it's the Spirit of God that then frees us to serve God in a new way that bears fruit for his kingdom. It's this reality of the Spirit of God that now marks the new life and the new age that God has for us. John Stott, the well-known New Testament scholar, says this on this verse. He says, The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the distinguishing characteristic of the new age and so of the new life in Christ. See, what Paul wants us to see is that when we belong to Jesus... God works in our hearts in such a way that he gives us his spirit. Think about that for a minute. God literally knew you were unable to keep the law in such a way that what he did was not only save you from the penalty of the law, he empowered you with the very spirit of God of himself to help you live that entirely, entirely new life. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come and it would fall on people for a specific purpose or for a specific time. And so when you read through the Old Testament, you see moments where God's Spirit comes and he works in Moses or he works in the elders in the camp or he falls on David or Saul or various people. But it was always for a limited time and only on certain people. But what marks the new covenant what marks the reality of what takes place in the gospel of Jesus is that the Spirit of God now comes to indwell every believer for all time. That God has actually given us himself to dwell in us, and this now marks our lives. And so the new way we live is empowered by the Spirit, which means we live in relationship with God constantly. When you go to work, when you parent, when you at home, when you entertain, watch your TV, when you do whatever, God's given you his spirit in you to help you know how you can live out that life that he has for you. He didn't give you a checklist of rules to follow. No, he gives you a spirit to guide you. He gives you himself. And when you live in relationship with God, you don't live out of this fear-based obligation you live out of the joy of relationship. And that joy of relationship is what leads to a new and good life. Michael Byrd, in his commentary, he tells this story that I think is a great picture of this. He says, imagine one day that there's a woman who meets a guy, falls in love with him, and they end up and decide to get married. So she marries him and then finds out pretty soon after marrying him that he is a terrible, terrible husband. Like, in fact, he's abusive. He's a tyrant. And one of the things he does every day is he would leave for work and he would give her a list of chores that he demanded that she would do to perfection before he returned home that day. And she would never be able to complete the chores. And when he would come home, if she hadn't done them, man, he was just worse. He'd verbally abuse her, yell at her, tell her she was useless, nothing, could never do it. And so she lived under this tyranny for years, every day, just trying, 
at some point to live up to this standard, just hoping she could appease him enough to make their relationship work. One day, her husband passed away and she was grateful to be freed from the tyranny that she suffered for so many years. Some time went by, she met a new guy, they fell in love, they got married, and this guy was the opposite. He was a good man who loved her for who she was, who cared about her, and they began to build their new lives together. And he worked a little bit of ways away, so every day he would get up and he'd leave for work and she would stay at home helping to manage their house and also manage an online business that they ran together. And as the relationship grew, she saw that he loved her and cared for her, that he was focused on her and her well-being. And yeah, they fought sometimes and had disagreements, but they worked it out together. And so the years went by and they lived in, in just a joyful union together. And then one day she was cleaning out one of her old junk drawers. And in the back of the drawer, she found one of the old lists that her first husband used to give her. And as she looked over the list and she saw all the things that he demanded of her, she realized that most every day in her new marriage, she did those things. But she never felt the tyranny of it. It never felt like obligation to her or duty. It wasn't fear. Why? Because she knew her husband loved her. She did it out of love because she wanted a good relationship with him. She wanted to experience the best life that they could manage together. You see, when you're united with Jesus, it completely transforms the way you see the life that you're called to live because you realize he loves you, that he's committed to you, that he wants what's best for you. And the things he asks of you are not tyrannical, they're to bring you life and goodness and joy. You see, the free, Spirit frees us to serve God, not out of obligation and law, but out of love and union. Our new life is not produced by viewing God as some tyrannical taskmaster who just has a whole bunch of rules to follow. The new life is produced by seeing a God that loves you so much he sent his son to die, to pay the penalty for your sin. And not only that, he rose to new life so you could be united with him forever and experience the good and best life possible both now and on into eternity. And that God doesn't expect you to figure out how to do that in your own power and strength, but he's actually given you his spirit so you can know his presence so you can be empowered to live that new life. And the question that we all have to ask at some point is, is my life marked by the spirit of God or is it marked by a spirit of law? Do I walk in joyful union with Jesus, empowered by his spirit, knowing his presence on a regular basis? Or am I trying to do this whole Jesus thing in my own effort and strength? because that will never produce the life that we desire. It will never produce the freedom that God calls us to. Because the spirit of God is what unites us to Christ and empowers that life. I remember for many, many years, and I've 
shared some of this story before. For many, many years, I lived trapped by the power of sin in my life. From early on as a teenager, on into young adulthood, even just in my early years after college, I struggled with following the call of God and living purity, both in my mind and my actions. And I struggled constantly. And I lived under a mindset for many, many years that yes, I love Jesus, but it was really up to me to figure out how to follow Jesus and obey what God had called me to. And so I, for years, would set up all sorts of rules for myself to try to follow God's ways. Man, I'd do everything that I could. I remember one time, I had some guys who were, we were working together to keep each other accountable, to walk in the way that Jesus had called us to walk. And so we, we made it a mark. We decided, you know what? If we mess up and, and don't do what God asks us to do in this area of our life, we're gonna set ourselves a, a penalty for accountability. So if you mess up, you've got to give $100 in the offering at church on Sunday. Now, I was a college student at the time, right? So $100 was a lot of money. You know, because college students, they're not poor, but they think they're poor. You know that. But for me, it was a big deal. So yes, all right, we're going to do this. Go into that week. Here we go. The next week, we get back together. What happened? I'll put $100 in the, in the offering. All right, let's try it again. Nope. All right, let's try something new. That didn't work. And all this time, what I would do is I'd take my life and I'd just set up. Maybe if I have another rule, another effort, another thing, somehow I'll be able to get out of the old life and step into the new life. And I'd fail time and time and time again. Until one day, by God's grace, I began to realize the truth of the gospel. And that the gospel actually was meant to be the very thing that God would use to free me from sin's tyranny. I began to recognize that ultimately God had paid the penalty for my sin. That even if I messed up time and time again, I could not exhaust the grace of God. That it had covered it, taken it for all time on the cross. When Jesus died, my sin was removed from me. And God would never hold me accountable for that sin anymore. That I would get eternity with him, not because of my righteousness, because of Christ. But then I began to realize that God didn't begin to expect me from that point to just figure out the rest of it on my own. But God knew, even in my own fallenness, that I wasn't even able to do that. So he actually gave me his Holy Spirit to indwell me. And that as I learned to live in relationship to the Holy Spirit, I would experience the freedom from my old self and begin to experience a whole new life. That the freedom that I longed for, it didn't come with rules. It came with relationship. And when I learned to hear the Spirit of God in my life, when I learned to know His presence, when I learned to amplify His voice in my life, I began to walk in purity and freedom. And God set me free. 14 years, I have not fallen into the same trap of sin that I lived in for over a decade. And that's not because of me. That's because the Spirit of God empowers us for a new life. And I stand here to testify to you, there is no better life to live than a life empowered by the Spirit. It changes everything. God knew you weren't enough, but he gave you what you needed. 
He gave you his spirit. And so Paul says, man, you want to bear the fruit of the kingdom? You want to experience the good life that God has? Recognize you're united in Jesus. That frees you from the law that unites you to him. But it gives you a power in relationship that changes everything. And what you and I need is the spirit of God to continue to fill us and empower us to live out the life God has called us to. And so this morning, I just wanted to really close by just having a time to invite you to ask God to give you his spirit to come, to fill you again, to empower you to live the life he's called you to live. There's never a point in our journey of following Jesus that we we have enough of God's spirit. There's not a point where we're like, cool, check that box. I'm good. No, we need constantly fresh filling, fresh empowering. We need the spirit of God to continue to work in our life and to live in relationship to him. And my sense this morning was, man, I think we as a church just needed a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit. I've been praying for it all week. Our team this morning was praying over this room, praying over specific sections of this room that God would give us a fresh connection with the Holy Spirit this morning and fill us fresh. And I'm gonna come and pray one more time to ask him to do that in your life. So I'm gonna just invite you here right now just for a moment to kind of close your eyes, to recenter on him for a minute, right? Just to, just to let you focus. And I'm gonna pray in a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit to come. And he's going to come. In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And at the end of wrapping up his kind of section, he tells them this interesting truth. He says to them, how many of you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids? How many of you, if your child comes and asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or how many of you If they come and ask for a fish, we'll give them a scorpion. God knows even as sinful parents, we long to give our good gifts to our kids. And then he makes this point, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? See, we don't have to earn the Holy Spirit. We're given him as a gift. And when we ask, God gives a fresh a fresh anointing, a fresh filling of the Spirit. And so I'm just going to ask God on your behalf right now to just come. And I'm going to trust because Jesus said it, that he's going to do it right now in your life. And so if you want to encounter with the Spirit this morning, I'm just going to invite you wherever you're at to respond to maybe what God's leading in your heart. Maybe you want to open your hands. Maybe you want to bow. Whatever it is. But I'm going to just trust. And I'm going to ask the Lord to come to give us what we need to live the life he's called us to live. Heavenly Father, we follow the model of our Savior, Jesus. And I ask right now that you would send your Holy Spirit to fall upon the hearts and lives of the people in this place and who are connecting with us online. We trust that as we ask, you give that you're a good father who wants to give us your presence. You're not holding anything back from us. But as we seek to receive what you have given, we can trust that you will provide. God, you picture 
your spirit in Acts 2 as a fresh wind and as tongues of fire. And so we ask right now in, in just the imagery that you've given that you would come and your spirit would blow fresh into the sails of our lives this morning. Blow into our hearts freshness. Refresh us in your power and in your presence. Holy Spirit, would you fall like fire upon us? Let our hearts burn with the presence of Jesus. Let us know that you are here amongst us this morning. Let not one of us leave who has not encountered the transforming work of your spirit in our lives. Let us leave with fresh power and a fresh anointing for the life that you have called us to live. So we come open to receive this morning. And we just simply ask you to come and trust that you will. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.